Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, as Russia's war on Ukraine enters its third month, we review the latest on U.S. aid to Ukraine, as well as the larger defense budget. Joining us to discuss all of this is AAF's Director of Fiscal Policy, Gordon Gray. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since you've been on. How, how have you been? I've been just peachy. It's good to be back on. I appreciate <laughs> your producers reaching out to me and bringing me on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, me walking across the hall to your office and saying, hey, Gordon, want to do the podcast? <laughs> real, real fun. I know this is a topic that you, you enjoy, you, you like to write about. So let's jump right into things. It's been over two months. Um, we're entering month three. Um, since Russia invaded Ukraine. The United States has already agreed to $13.6 billion in emergency assistance, and President Biden has announced he's seeking another $33 billion. Will you start by walking us through the first aid package, break these numbers down for us? Sure. So in March, the President of the United States signed into law the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which included an additional $13.6 billion in emergency aid to Ukraine. That aid was essentially split between giving uh, them additional defense assistance and also some uh, additional funding for U.S. defense efforts. President Biden just last week sent a supplemental uh, request to Congress for an additional $33 billion for aid to, uh, to Ukraine. It's about $16 billion for the Department of Defense, an additional $14 billion for the State Department, plus a few uh, billion for the Treasury Department and a few other agencies to, to assist with some sanctions work and, and, uh, and some other efforts. But broadly, it's two large tranches of money for DOD and for the Department of State. And that will fund, one, just the U.S. defense posture has certainly increased uh, recently, just U.S. defense activities in uh, among uh, and with NATO partners just uh, providing additional, additional security assistance to Eastern Europe, just the tempo of operations has increased. So a lot of it is just paying for more gas and manpower. But we've also been in providing Ukraine with uh, Stinger missiles, Javelin missiles, and additional other weapon systems. Like, you know, we don't have an endless supply of these munitions. And when you think about the conflicts that the U.S. has been involved in over the last 20 years, they haven't been the conflicts that have required these kind of weapon systems. When we were fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan, we weren't shooting down planes. We weren't using stingers. We weren't using anti-armor uh, to the same degree that is needed in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Indeed, a lot of the U.S. stocks for stinger uh, missiles, javelin missiles, and other sort of high-end weapon systems, they were designed essentially to counter the Soviet threat in the 80s, but we never confronted them until now. And so we are depleting those. Indeed, uh, President Biden went to Alabama this week to a Lockheed uh, facility to talk about the depletion of U.S. munitions stocks. And some of the funds in this $33 billion is essentially just to ramp up and replenish uh, munitions and, and weapon systems that we've already provided to Ukraine. So uh, some of this is backfilling the assistance we've already provided. 
So it sounds like a lot of this, you know, it's replenishing, but it's also making sure that they get the humanitarian assistance. And that's in that 33 billion additional spending request, correct? Correct. There's seven and a half billion dollars in economic aid to Ukraine. So you got to consider like this is a, a, a sovereign nation that all of a sudden was invaded. And so basic aspects of their governance, revenue collection just has broken down and necessarily so like you're. Folks have more important things to do than, than uh, you know, document uh, tax collections and, and things like that. But states need tax receipts to pay for things, and you need to pay for things to provide goods and services to your population. And when you have uh, Russian troops rolling through your, your country and doing what they're doing, you can't do that. So I think um, there's, a, there's a legitimate need for uh, basic economic assistance, humanitarian assistance. There's almost $2 billion in, in just food. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's clearly needed uh, right now. But substantially, this package prioritizes uh, defense assistance because that's what the Ukrainians need. So what about the mechanics of all this? How, how does this funding get passed? It's currently attached to the additional COVID-19 funding. Um, being stopped by congressional Democrats. How do we see Congress getting this package over the finish line? So explicitly, the president of the United States, in his letter to, to Congress detailing the supplemental request for Ukraine, stated that he would like to see this paired with a tw- the $22 billion COVID supplemental that the president had previously uh, sent him to the Hill. So the, the strategy appears to be to pair the Ukrainian supplemental with the, the COVID supplemental. Mm. Uh, it's not clear that w- what the outlook is for passage of the COVID supplemental. Um, there, there's some some concerns in Congress among Republicans on, on that. And so the thinking here clearly is, well, if Congre- Congress can pass the Ukrainian supplemental, slam them together, and that should raise the prospects of, of passing both. There is a tradition in Washington of doing that. Mm. I don't have a good whip count on what the uh, what a combined package would uh, would how many votes they could win in Congress, but that seems to be the strategy for when uh, Congress gets back into town fully when the House gets back in next week. But there are some other things on their minds these days as well, so we'll we'll see when when they get to this. But the administration and policymakers have been signaling that this is an immediate need. Essentially, we passed 13.6 billion dollars in March, and we're going through it pretty quickly. Okay, so with all that being said, let's take a step back and consider the larger uh, defense budget here. Um, How does this year's defense bill compare with those of the past decade? Um, Specifically, what does it mean for defense now that the the BCA caps have expired? Yeah, so it's interesting. When the president signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act in in March, that was uh, all 12 appropriations bills for all the agencies, uh, all stacked up together in one major omnibus appropriation bill. And so it funded the agencies for the for the full year. By full year, I mean really just the half of the year that they that was remaining in the fiscal year because it took them essentially six months to get to that that agreement. And in that you can see some of the tension in the appropriation cycle that has emerged after the expiration of the Budget Control Act. So uh, for those listening, you may recall that the Budget Control Act was enacted in 2011, and it imposed discretionary spending caps on defense and non-defense spending for a decade, so through 2021. Over the course of those 10 years, those spending caps were lowered because of what was called sequestration, 
and basically it put the federal agencies on a diet that Congress and frankly, the American people and both presidents, Trump and Obama, put discretionary spending on a diet that they just couldn't live on. And so every couple of years, they would have to come around and turn off or raise the caps under the Budget Control Act on defense and non-defense spending. And the way they did that was it was usually a compromise between conservatives and, and, um, and progressives on the Hill that for every dollar you spend on defense, you got to spend the same amount on non-defense spending. And that was the deal for year after year, five times. That was in general, the proposition is that if you want to increase defense, you got to spend the same amount on non-defense. And so what happened was that um, defense policy was less was diminished as a consideration in, de in formulating the defense budget because you always had this political calculus to make. And so President Obama would serially sort of send up a defense budget that was less than everybody knew was ever going to be enacted. He would sort of shortchange the defense budget. His service secretaries would go up on the Hill and say, you know, this is tough for us, and then expect Republicans to to deliver and provide the defense funding that frankly, the services said they needed. But the cost of that was basically being bought off by having to spend more on non-defense spending. And that was the, the political equilibrium for 10 years, largely. And that just expired at the end of 2021. And so for once, the first time in a decade, appropriators could spend money without having to worry about the Budget Control Act. Sounds great. Seems easy. Well, of course, it took them until March to get to a deal. So in my view, it was the case the Budget Control Act was was bad for defense policy because it didn't inform the defense budget as much. It was kind of caught up in a lot of these other political considerations. But it was an orderly process. They knew they would have to deal with the defense caps under the Budget Control Act. And so they would work out these multi-year budget deals that at least had some regularity and predictability. And there was actually a little bit of flexibility for certain kinds of, uh, it was called overseas contingency operations. It allowed for the defense agencies to resource some of their priorities uh, under the caps. And so, you know, we've, we've just seen an evolution in the defense funding process from the Budget Control Act to now one that is post-BCA. Um, but you can still see that there are some tensions in, in how uh, Congress arrives at a defense budget. I think the term that was always thrown around when all this was happening was the par that parity principle that you wrote about the other day. Um, and th those sorts of things were basically how the funding the defense worked over the past past couple of years. Exactly. That was the, the proposition. And it was uh, parity for non-defense funding. And so for every dollar for defense, uh, progressives wanted a dollar for non-defense, um, irrespective of like what the defense need was didn't matter. It was, if you want to spend it on defense, you got to spend it on non-defense. And, and that's how we sort of backed into defense. Interesting. Now let's go to the future. Assuming the $33 billion package gets passed, how long might that funding last? Well, so it is reportedly that the, the hope is that this uh, will be the last supplemental that they will need for this fiscal year. But the enemy gets a vote. And so we have no idea what at least I don't. This budget nerd doesn't know what the future of the conflict in, in Ukraine is going to look like. Um, I have no idea what Russian forces are going to do. I am encouraged by the commitments from the president, from Speaker Pelosi, just this weekend saying that we will stand by Ukraine. And so to the extent that we have made that commitment, 
then that should be that is the priority. What we what we spend should be uh, just a function of defining the mission, and the mission appears now to be to stand with Ukraine. And so, if the thirty three billion doesn't get the job done, then we'll have to come back for more. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the nature of this conflict. You mentioned uh, Speaker Pelosi's comments. Uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi last week led that, that delegation to Ukraine, spoke with President uh, Zelensky, and, and basically pledged to him that the United States will be there, quote, until the fight is done, end quote. Uh, I'd imagine that most Americans support that sentiment, but it's certainly unclear at this point what that might mean. So, you know, we're just two months in, and we've already pledged more than 45 billion dollars. How long is this level of support sustainable? Well, so the uh, the president signed the $13.6 billion supplemental uh, into law in March. You know, we're, we're two, two months, eh, more like a month and a half, hence from that. Um, you know, $33 billion is a, um, you know, twice that amount. But fundamentally, the course of this conflict uh, is not a, a as much of a budgetary uh, outlook. It's one about what is the direction of this war. And that is a function of what President uh, Putin wants to do. And then you know, how the, the NATO, fundamentally Ukraine, uh, responds. And I think the statements from the President of the United States, from Speaker Pelosi, uh, as to the U.S. commitment to ensuring uh, the defense of Ukraine suggests to me that we will provide what assistance is needed to help defend that sovereign nation. And so I believe it is the the hope and expectation that this supplemental will provide sufficient funding for uh, the Ukrainian defense uh, initiative and efforts uh, through the end of the fiscal year. Um, But it's as yet, it's unclear uh, what the geopolitical situation will be. And uh, my hope is that the commitments from elected representatives of the United States, particularly the president, uh, as to the commitment to Ukraine's defense is that will be the priority and and that we will simply do what is necessary to to secure that end state. And on that same note, how might aid packages look going forward? I mean, what might Congress do going forward? What might the president do request going forward? Uh, Do we see funding uh, for Ukraine moving through the regular budget process? Well, so to be sure, it has been the case that the defense budget is in part informed by the Russian threat. That threat is now has now been acutely unleashed in Ukraine. And so countering Russia is to some extent baked into the defense budget. There's now a particular emergency need given the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And so there should be elements of for example, um, developing uh, systems and replenishing stocks that are uh, built into the defense budget. However, there are some clearly some unique needs, some event-driven needs that the invasion has precipitated. And we've also seen an evolution in the nature of the assistance. So, you know, and uh, one can recall under the o- Obama administration, they were providing uh, helmets and night vision and optics and uh, non-lethal aid, and in this you know, latest tranche, we're now saying them uh, long-range artillery and you know, howitzers and specialized unmanned um, uh, U- UCAVs and, and other um, capabilities that would would have been unthinkable even not long ago. And so, I think that this will probably be a hybrid approach going forward. I think that's actually the right approach 
uh, responsible budgeting would incorporate this new dimension to the U.S. defense outlook and national security outlook. It should incorporate this in the defense budget going forward. But as the conflict in the Ukraine evolves, the U.S. and policymakers should be prepared uh, to be agile in meeting the defense needs for the Ukraine. Interesting. Well, Gordon, thanks for breaking this all down and joining us uh, on this episode. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.